Minnesotans, you are here listening to Soda State of the Arts podcast with Jason McKenzie, one of your co-hosts. Oh. oh, and then that means that I, Sarah Kensler, am the other co-host. Welcome to Soda, my friends. Soda, Soda, Soda. It's Soda great. <laughs> <laughs> State of the Arts, 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 Arts. Nothing. <laughs> um, okay, so now that we had a really enthusiastic and cheerful greeting, we're going to bring it way down to the real and the serious and the mildly depressing, but, but ultimately there is a silver lining, but it's, it's going to get dark before it gets light. I would, I would like to point out that um, it's slightly more than mildly depressing as pro- proven by my excessive therapy bills. Yes. Uh, So what we're talking about today, just to give some context to that, is the nonprofit industrial complex. And that's what puts Sarah in therapy. I'm just kidding. Um, But it's It's one of the things. But actually, uh, plug for therapy. We should all be in therapy, though, at least once a month. All be. And I understand that, you know... um, not everybody has like the insurance and like the, you know, the money to, to do the therapy. But that's what I'm saying is that everybody should be able to afford the health care, the free health care, the low cost health care, the accessible health care that also includes mental health. All right. Hey, but if you're in uh, the Minnesota area, there's a website called walkin.org. That is W-A-L-K-I-N dot O-R-G. And they are a free therapizing service based in the Twin Cities. Check them out. That's awesome. Thank you for that resource. So okay, Sarah and I both work in nonprofits and have for a while. And uh, for me there is a reason probably for the both of us there's a reason um a lot of like a majority of arts and culture organizations institutions da 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 are nonprofits you know from from really small uh you know kind of more community oriented uh spaces was altered aesthetics a nonprofit mm-hmm. yes so, like, from Altered Aesthetics, which uh, Sarah and I both worked on for a period of time, hers much longer than mine, to, like, the the Met Museum. All nonprofits, right? Um, so there's oh, all- the NFL is also a nonprofit. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, nonprofits. Legit. Yeah. Uh, you know, hospitals, some hospitals, not for, non-private hospitals, things like that. Um, so... It, Nonprofits are like there's they're all across the board um, in terms of subject matter. But, you know, we're 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 obviously we are working to decolonize and our thoughts and our personal artistic practices, as well as to think anti-racist, think in a, in a more anti-racist matter. So so understanding the nonprofit industrial complex is also a part of that. Um, and also going back to another reason why Sarah and I uh, are tied to the nonprofit industrial complex is also um, 
well, just on my part, is, you know, feeding into that, you know, a lot of arts institutions and arts organizations are, you know, 501c3 nonprofits. Um, I am a part of the public service loan forgiveness because education is so expensive in this country. I had to take out loans for undergraduate and graduate education because the field that I want to work in, Sarah and I have talked about this a lot, is highly academicized and highly professionalized. So I needed an advanced degree and that comes with a lot of loans. And so a way uh, that you can, you know, um, help with that situation is if you dedicate uh, 10 years or 120 months to, you know, public service, AKA just working for a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, you can then get your loans forgiven uh, without taxes. So that is something that I'm in. And that is another way that I have been, you know, kind of wrapped up in this complex. And so we're going to talk about why it sounds foreboding now. But that's just one example of, of how, you know, the, the wheels keep on turning, if you will. Okay, so this is something that I learned about recently. Honestly, I probably uh, was introduced to this topic within the last month because I listened to um, an episode of Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness titled Am I a Self-Karen, uh, which doesn't like, which doesn't uh, give set the stage for the episode at all because it was talking about the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, and so I, you know, have always been like, yeah, nonprofits, it's so, that's so great. Like, I always, like, I want to work for nonprofits. You know, I, I don't really want to go into the commercial art world. Um, so this all aligns that I'm, you know, in this, you know, public loan forgiveness and that I want to work for nonprofits and I feel more aligned to working with a nonprofit than for like a big company or a commercial space. However, um, so, you know, learning about this complex, you know, kind of, uh, you know, took away my rose tinted glasses and, and, you know, sh showed my privilege and, you know, introduced me more to, the ways that, you know, um, this sounds so conspiratorial, but how you buy into like, quote, the way they want you to think. But really though, I mean, we've, we've actually discussed this in detail about how working at a nonprofit is, uh, is more of an emotional endeavor. And, and that's why it is so difficult to separate yourself from, um, from the company it's because like, these are companies like make no mistake museums are companies they need money to run and they get a lot of money but you get a group of people who are passionate emotionally about the cause towards it allows for some exploitation but we're going to go into that later yeah and you know working in the nonprofit sector is so often, I don't know, criticized and kind of made fun of for being, you know, low, uh, low earning potential, like, oh, you're going into the nonprofit sector. Oh, okay, well, have fun not making as much money as you could. And, you know, uh, it also is stemming on this, like, oh, well, if you're in the humanities or the arts, it's you're doing it because you are passionate and you don't care about being paid, you know, competitive rates, because you are, 
invested and that's kind of like the trade-off right that you get to do oh man that's so okay my goodness all i can think of is like those images of the penitent mary from renaissance pieces where she's like clutching her chest and gazing up at the sky she's so innocent and passionate and she'll do anything and that's yeah that's us uh (laughs) yeah all right so what is the nonprofit industrial complex or the NPIC? One of the things that we really need to remember when uh, you know talking about the nonprofit industrial complex is that the nonprofit structure is man-made and it's government-made, right? So we think about oh, it's you know a, a place uh, applies to be a nonprofit, you know pays money to apply to be a nonprofit and has to meet certain standards, has to, you know, serve a community. Um, you know, it has to be very like a, a you know, a, a genuine pursuit. People have to be behind it. Usually a lot of like the people who want to start it have, have to add fundraising, um, to begin with, to apply and all of these things. Um, but it is formed by the people who are trying to control, you know, all the other parts of society, right? And I'm not not saying that, you know, uh, I'm not trying to, like, be an anarchist here, but that's just something, you know, like, it's government-made the, the same way that, you know, other things are government-made. Um, so... There's a great resource called Insight, I-N-C-I-T-E, um, and I will link to their webpage in our notes, uh, but they kind of lay out some good points just explaining what the nonprofit industrial complex is, and I will read them to you now just to give you a basis. It's a system of relationships between the state, which is local and federal governments, the owning classes, foundations, nonprofit social service and social justice organizations and the state uses the nonprofits to monitor and control social justice movements divert public monies to private hands through foundations manage and control dissent in order to make the world safe for capitalism redirect activist energies into career-based models of organizing instead of mass-based organizing capable of actually transforming society, allow corporations to mask their expletive and colonial work practices through, quote, philanthropic work, encourage social movements to model themselves after capitalist structures rather than to challenge them. So I know that that was a lot and it was very cynical and that you know, just when I first heard that, it really just made a pit in my stomach because I was just such like a a true believer. And I, you know, had kind of thought the best and assumed the best of this line of work. But really, it does have um, colonialist and very racist and conservative, uh, you know, means behind it. Another great resource comes from communitycentricfundraising.org. And they lay out, um, you know, kind of these nuances of the uh, nonprofit industrial complex a little more. So the rules uh, have been made by a network of public and private entities, including the state, business, individuals, and the nonprofits themselves. 
and they make decisions that uphold the power each one of them has in society. These entities and the relationship between them advances their interests rather than the public good. And so this is kind of what is making up for the nonprofit complex. And here's a quote from the site. It restricts how we move within nonprofits, funneling our work in certain directions and walling off others. It turns radical possibilities into dead ends, ensures that the path of least resistance is one that doesn't challenge those in power and amplifies corporate and state's interests over the voices of those most impacted by inequity. And Sarah, yeah. That seems really, ooh, that's, I, I feel attacked almost. I know. Um, did they, did they elaborate on what those points meant specifically? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll link to their website that um, I just kind of pulled out some key things that I learned from reading it, but um, I just kind of wanted to give more of an overview of what it is um, and, you know, the cons of it. And then also I'll talk about how to, you know, uh, move in the world while avoiding it if you can. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, you can definitely go back and read their website for more info. Um, so a way that it, a way that the PNIC works is that first it establishes private foundations, um, as a legal way for the wealthy to avoid paying chunks, um, of their wealth or sorry, to avoid paying taxes on large chunks of their wealth. Um, and that will, and that effectively guts revenue for public social services for working class people. Yeah. If they put their money in a nonprofit, it shelters it because it's going to a nonprofit. Um, Which is tax so exempt. Tax exempt, right. And they will actually get, so the, the foundation's ta tax exempt. And then also it, uh, they get a tax credit for, for donating, right? So, so usually mm -hmm. they put money into foundation. They'd be like, oh, we're, you know, we're giving out grants. Um, you can apply for the grants, da-da-da. Um, and so then that gets dispersed. And usually one of the requirements is that you have to be a 501c3. And so then that's where the tax credit comes in. Um, and then, of course, where they, they, you know, somebody might start their foundation saying, oh, this is a foundation for, uh, and then it will say, it you know, obviously the, the foundation will reflect the interests of the founder of the person with the wealth. So that foundation will then make requirements for uh, those who apply and those who get the grants. So, you know, it's really kind of prioritizing and moving forward the ideas, viewpoints, you know, priorities of the wealthy person. And this is even after that person has um, is deceased as well. I think we, we talked about this on an earlier episode. Absolutely. Um, so that, that legacy goes on, that generational, uh, wealth goes on, these old ideas of how, you know, what should be prioritized, things like that goes on, uh, because that person's estate will just kind of, you know, freeze. It's, you know, thinking for the most part, I mean, you know, things might be rephrased or something to be palatable for the day, but, but generally 
uh, main concepts will prevail. Next, it facilitates further wealth accumulation for the rich. Um, in the U.S., foundations are legally required to give away 5% of their assets annually in order to ensure that they're active in charitable giving, but they rarely choose to exceed 5%. Instead, investing the vast majority of their endowment in the stock market and growing their assets without ever giving a substantial share to charities. You know, so you can give 5% away and, you know, they could probably give, afford to give 95% away or, you know, 100% because they're, at this point, their money is probably already in the stock market and their money is just making money for them. They don't even have to work for their money. Um, mm -hmm. But so they'll give kind of the minimum amount to be labeled in that charity status and then the rest will go into the stock market. So it's just compounding more money on more money. This is getting a little bit into um, tax and planned giving as well, but there are ways in which that you can uh, use your wealth to, while you are still living, you can donate a portion of your wealth through something called a charitable giving annuity. Um, the details of which I'm, I'm not going to go into here for two reasons. It's complicated, and also I don't know that I could quite explain it accurately. But the result is that not only does the charity get some of the money donated, but the person who donated the money is actually paid a monthly sum from that amount. So in fact, they are not, they're not losing the same amount of wealth that they say that they are donating to the charity. So another way of like wealth giving, begetting wealth or like yeah. the act of charity actually being profitable. I mean, yeah, there, there's two different ways to look at that, right? It's a double-edged sword because on one hand, it encourages the wealthy to donate to charities and nonprofits, which is good most times. Um, the other way to look at it is is like you just said, and like this site makes a point of that it it uh, proliferates the wealthy continuing to be wealthy. Absolutely. Another way that foundations maintain their control is by choosing which political and economic projects they want to put their money towards, um, kind of like I mentioned just a bit ago. Um, but for the most part, they're not, the foundations and the person behind them or people behind them are not actually representative of the communities most impacted by inequity. So I'm just going to, you know, make an example that, um, you know, there's a museum that's in a, you know, maybe a diverse or, you know, lower income area, uh, but they still have big donors and things, you know, it's still a cultural hub. It's still a place that is able to take precious objects and keep them safe. It's a place where people who do have precious artworks that they can donate them to, that kind of thing, uh, you know, feel involved in the museum, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they would, they would never, you know, live in that neighborhood. You know, they could probably afford to buy 10 houses right. in that neighborhood. Um, yep. But, you know, it's it's not to their standard of living, you know, ob and obvious, obviously, um, just historically, um, lower income uh, communities are working class, a lot of them are more diverse, you know, non white, as opposed to uh, more like the wealthy 
uh, communities are more predominantly white and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and also, you know, thinking maybe about age, maybe generally older or, you know, maybe it's, you know, old money versus new money. Anyways, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, these these no, they, you're right. These donors do tend to skew older and whiter. Um, but I think to the important point about what you were just talking about is that all of that money from those donors, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, goes into the cultural institution and not to the community around it. And so, while the mission of the cultural institution is important uh, when compared with social programs like food security, housing security, uh, healthcare, you know, not having art or access to cultural items is going to, is not going to kill you. Uh, not having access to healthcare though. will kill you. Yes. And, and to your point, jumping off of that, you know, these structures of quote, big philanthropy, because sometimes, you know, we talk about like big pharma or, you know, big oil or whatever, but there is such a thing as big philanthropy. And it really makes it easy for nonprofits to become invested in their funders' agendas rather than the communities they serve, right? And that's, you know, someone at that museum loves, you know, just loves this one artist. And, um, you know, maybe that artist is, you know, totally you know, it's totally worth investing in their work. They've definitely deserved it. You know, they have a, they have a great career and make great work. And, you know, they're pushing for, uh, you know, the acquisition committee to buy their work and become a part of their collection. And that's, you know, that's really good. This person wants to support this artist, you know, wants to support their career, wants to, you know, bring their work to the museum so other people can enjoy in this great artist's work. And, you know, a lot of people working in nonprofits, you know, they're the true believers. They, you know, have this genuine, you know, place that they're coming from, but the person who donated, you know, if this was like a contemporary artist, like the person, you know, Jane Doe, who's on, whose name is on that wing, um, you know, has a, has a thing like, oh, well, I give tons of money every year, you know, my name's on the thing, and my you know, I want to, I want to collect just contemporary abstract artists or something. And maybe this person who's really revolutionary and this person, the curator is really pushing for is a photographer. And it's like, ah, I, you know, and then, then those, that artist doesn't get uh, collected because the person whose name is on the gallery doesn't like it and maybe maybe that artist is representative of the community around them you know maybe it's they're a by poc working class artist who is who is you know come to this really great moment in their career but you know these the the people who have donated the money to acquisition art don't want to collect that you know don't want that so anyways it's it's it is a it is a double-edged sword It is a cyclical kind of thing. The state also monitors and suppresses leftist activity in nonprofits through the IRS, which watches for any political activity that may jeopardize an organization's 501c3 status. So um, 
they give an example that in 1938, in addition to the tax code, determined that any organization formed to, quote, disseminate controversial or partisan propaganda is not an educational organization and therefore not eligible for tax-exempt tax status. So that is great that we're, you know, um, that we are, you know, trying to push forward uh, nonpartisan things that we are, you know, that we're not making like we're not making it. Oh, you can only come to this art museum if you're a Democrat, like you will only enjoy it here. You'll only be welcome here and you'll only feel reflected in this this place if you're a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or whatever. But, you know, another side to that is, you know, if you wanted, if you if your idea is to create an organization that, you know, reflects your political views, then you would have a hard time getting or it would be impossible to get that 501c3 status. And so then you wouldn't have this tax benefit that you'd be able to offer your donors, etc., um, however, just they do point out historically that the uh, that the United States is historically, uh, you know, pretty conservative. That change comes slowly here. That um, our change in our our culture, um, you know, doesn't doesn't fluctuate and doesn't uh, you know isn't speeding up in its you know kind of uh, wokeness. Um, but is still on this very gradual, uh, gradual incline or gradual awakening, if you will, um, the same as it had always been, and the same that, that it always had, blah, blah, blah. the same that it always has been. Um, so to this point, it means that organization with radical leftist policies are forced to either water down their mission in order to comply with the IRS or they must forgo the 501c3 status and the ability to offer that tax exemption to donors, which de-incentivizes giving. Um, another obvious problem is the professionalization of nonprofit work, including the growing number of people seeking advanced degrees in nonprofit management, which seeks to bring corporate management techniques to the world of nonprofits. And Sarah and I have talked about this a lot, um, that the private that the professionalization of the art world and of the nonprofit world um, creates a divide a lot between the nonprofit employees and the clients that they serve. Also, that the ability to, you know, receive an education, access to education, access to higher education, you know, the ability to get a loan to go to school and that kind of thing is also racist and uh, divisionist and, um, you know, uh, elitist and also keeps. I mean, the most, the most um, cynical to look at that relationship between academia and nonprofit is you've got one system, academia, that is uh, systemically and historically racist in many ways that we've spoken up about at length, feeding directly another system, um, you know, the system that actually Jason and I worked in, which were the arts and humanities, that is historically and systemically racist as well. So you've got kind of this um, cyclical perseverance of the system that uh, that we're trying to fight against and reform. Absolutely. 
and nonprofits through the services they provide and the media and other that and other campaigns they design explicitly and implicitly reinforce and perpetuate certain ideas. For example, by their work, they frame what is the quote, appropriate solution to social problems. And by framing the solutions to problems in a particular way, nonprofits also implicitly frame where these problems come from in the first place. And they, and in this way, nonprofits also reinforce an ideology about the most appropriate way to bring about change, namely working for a for-profit. So, you know, these things are created and, you know, created by obviously people who, and this is sometimes good or bad, you know, this is a very fraught and nebulous subject, but they're made by people who often, you know, have the gumption for this subject and they find other people who feel the same way, get behind them. And they're saying, this is a problem and we want to, we want to help it. We want to fix it. This is the way we're going to fix it. And, you know, just by this creation and because this entity was started, you know, obviously they're going to try to reach out to as many people as possible because they want to accomplish a goal and they want to advertise. They want to connect with the community. They want to connect to donors and the donors and the people behind this is going to shape the framework of how it operates and what their mission is and, their goals. Um, and then as this idea gets, you know, spread wider, people say, oh, yes, you're right. This is a problem. Oh, thank you for educating me on how this problem was started. Oh, and thank you for telling me how I can fix it is by donating to your nonprofit. And so then the next person comes along and is like, oh, look, I was told that this is the beginning of how this problem was started. Um, and the way that I can help is by donating to this nonprofit or working for this nonprofit. And it, it just, you know, makes a cycle and it kind of boxes in thinking, you know, then, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, look at a social issue or something in the arts and think outside the box, or you don't even consider thinking outside the box. You, so it is given to you and it's all, you know, and you work within those confines. So this is getting kind of meta. I understand. Um, but I mean, that's something that I had never considered before. Yeah, me either. And I feel ashamed, you know, that I was like, you know, I'm just about being blind and privileged and, um, you know, just kind of like eating the plate that was put in front of me without critically thinking about it, you know? But I, I mean, I think really like go easy on yourself, because I, I think that anybody who goes into a nonprofit, especially, you know, people in our generation who went into nonprofits a couple of years ago, the way the way in which we were taught about nonprofits or specifically about the humanities didn't include criticism. It just didn't. Um, exactly. It was, and here's the inherent, you know, right. Uh, Exactly. Bias and inequity. The systemic and, racism and inequity. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so it's, you know, finding these things out, you, you feel regretful that you haven't seen it previously, but we do now. I mean, that's, that's the point of this focus that we have. Absolutely. So, um, 
you know, you can feel guilt about it. Sorry, I've been thinking about white guilt a lot this week. Um, you can feel about guilt white about it. Guilt, oh, like sorry. from the hours of 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. Like every <laughs> night I lay in bed. Yeah. And, and I think that's, guilt. you know, that's, fi- it's fine to know it exists, but ultimately guilt and shame are not useful emotions. Yeah. yeah they, they do nothing except uh, ultimately they can paralyze you, really. Yes. Um, I shan't and so let it. we shan't be paralyzed by our guilt and shame. We acknowledge it and try try to be better. Try betterer. Try to be yeah. more better. Yes, we try to be more better. And speaking about trying to be more better, you might be wondering, okay, Jasa, you just laid out some like heavy stuff about this nonprofit industrial complex, which I may or may not have known about. Um, what can I do about it? Well, if you have a nonprofit or you work for a nonprofit and that's where you are right now, I understand we're in the middle of a pandemic and a crisis and just, you know, even when we're not having a job and especially having a job in your field, if you do, um, or having a job that helps other people, like is, uh, is a wonderful thing. So I'm, you know, don't, uh, just, just, you know, one thinking critically and thinking about the histories and thinking about, you know, maybe looking into the founding of your nonprofit and that kind of thing, um, your donors, et cetera. Just researching and being more aware is a great start. Um, if you are in a position to have influence, you know, you could really uh, examine your mission, um, examine yourself if you and your own biases. If you're the person who started this, um, you know, uh, look at accessibility, look at the community you serve versus your staff and versus, you know, how how you're providing your services um, or what the problem is. Why do you think that that's the problem? Are there any alternatives? Look at how you're trying to solve that problem. Is that the best way or is that just the way that you were told to do it, et cetera? So just starting that kind of thought exercise and maybe acting on that if you can is a great start. You can uh, focus on community-centric fundraising Uh, because it provides a different framework for thinking about how the power flows through organizations. So instead of reinforcing donors as agenda setters and nonprofits, community-centric fundraising asks, how can we invite our donors deeper into the conversations about the root causes of wealth inequity? We can also just, you know, use this term nonprofit industrial complex to just help us think more critically about how our nonprofits operate in the world. And using this lens, we can see that the nonprofit sector is not immune to the pressures of capitalism or structural racism. Um, You can also try to get involved in or invest in grassroots organizations and initiatives. And I just, you know, I, I, grassroots is something that I had heard all the time, hear all the time. um, And I just kind of wanted to, I, I looked up you know, a definition. And so I just wanted to, you know, provide that as well for anybody who was like, I know what it means, but I don't really know what it means. And it was, I did get this from the old Wikipedia as well. But I looked at others and I looked at like the, the dictionary and the encyclopedia, and it just didn't seem to have the right definition colloquially. So at least um, I feel like the Wikipedia got, you know, what like culturally what it means. 
Um, a grassroots movement is one which uses the people in a given district, region, or community as the basis for a political or economic movement. Grassroots movements and organizations use the collective action from the local level to affect change at the local, regional, national, or international level. Grassroots movements are associated with bottom-up rather than top-down decision-making and are sometimes considered more natural or spontaneous than traditional power structures. Grassroots movement utilizing self-organization encourage community members to contribute by taking responsibility and action for their community. So I just wanted to highlight this bottom up rather than top down decision making, you know, rather than this, the head of the nonprofit saying, hey, this is our problem. You know, here's how we're going to address it. You know, let's all, you know, all of my employees are going to do their part. It's local people saying we are living here this is our reality we've all come together we've talked about it you know here is our here's our point of view here's what we need here's our problem here's we want to solve it here's how we want to solve it uh and then going up to their you know local representative who then takes it up higher etc cetera, etc cetera. And also this self-organization self rather than having one person that's like, everybody, let me organize you. It's just, you know, kind of this, yeah, like this spontaneous, like reaction to a moment, reaction to a need. Yeah. And Seeing a need somebody, and then acting based on that. Precisely, precisely. Instead of mm -hmm. someone telling you how and why and et cetera. Another thing to keep in mind is that you can practice effective altruism. And effective altruism is a philosophy and social movement that advocates using the evidence and reasoning to determine the most effective ways to benefit others. And there are resources online that, that will help you research an initiative or organization um, to get to know them. So if you're thinking about working for, volunteering, donating to a certain cause, nonprofit, et cetera, um, there's even, I think there's one that's just effectivealtruism.com or .org um, that will help you do this research to ask these questions of what is behind this nonprofit and, you know, maybe find some other alternatives um, or maybe even some grassroots uh, initiatives that, that you can, you know, kind of put your, put your money, time, thought towards. So I know wow. this has been heavy. But it was a reality check that I needed, and I hope that it is enlightening for some. However, I know that this is, like Sarah said, a double-edged sword. It's a catch-22. And, um, I mean, it was kind of meant to be. You know, it's, it's meant to, you know, keep, I don't know, keep people in line or just kind of monitor what nonprofits are coming up, what people are thinking, you know, just kind of controlling what's out there, uh, but kind of doing it in this, you know, wolf in sheep clothing kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And this is not to say what, what Jason and I are not saying is that all nonprofits are evil and tax shelters for the rich and only perpetuate the 1% in America and should be done away with. No. Absolutely not. None of that's true. Um, but there's just a way in which the current system does perpetuate some of those ideas. And all of these points of contention at every single nonprofit, you might just find one or a few 
but um, but if we are to truly renovate our system, uh, revamp society so that it benefits those who are the most needy among us, thus making the whole system work better for everyone, it's important to think critically while also having an eye on possible solutions to the criticisms that you ultimately find, even if it's within something that you love and have worked towards. That is very well said, Sarah, and I'm gonna take that sound clip and just keep it with me because I think that I'm just gonna need to listen to it periodically here and there. I actually might need to listen to it periodically too. I mean, we both do work currently for nonprofits as well. And and I, I know that the nonprofit that I work for, uh, TPT, I believe strongly in their mission. And um, I've been very pleased with the way that they have uh, recognized the system in which they operate and have tried to change the way that they operate so that um, so that they can become uh, more representative of the community around them. Um, and I'm and I'm proud of that mission. But it's also very important to to think critically. Absolutely. And same with me. I think the nonprofit that I work for is great. Um, they have a good mission. I, being on such a small team, I really see how they are thinking critically and they, you know, this is an, an arts nonprofit. They are trying to do their best to represent the community that they are in. And, and that's giving me, you know, someday I could see myself opening my own nonprofit and I'm learning a lot right now about, what what works, what doesn't, something I like, something I don't like. Um, but again, maybe actually instead of a nonprofit, I want to open up a grassroots space. I want to open up like an artist run space and, you know, just just try to work outside of this 501c3, you know, um, just all this time that I thought about having an art space, I always assumed, oh, yeah, it'll be a nonprofit. It's great. Um, and so learning about this recently has, you know, kind of changed up my, my thinking. And just so you know, everybody, SOTA is not a nonprofit. We are a grassroots organization. And we have a Patreon. We <laughs> we're right. We're registered one, uh, except with Anchor that uh, distributes our podcast for free. Thank you, Anchor. Um, we are not a nonprofit. We are self-run. Disitula. <laughs> I know we would really like to hear your thoughts, your feelings, your, you know, just anything enlightenment that you can provide to us on this topic or, you know, anything really. Um, you can email us at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. That's also our Instagram handle. So give us a DM. And also in the Anchor app, you can leave messages and you can record messages. So that's really cool. We can play them on the show. Just get in touch. We want to know your thoughts, your feelings, your queries. Queries. That's what I said. You said queers. I said queries. Did you say queries? Okay, I'm sorry. But hey. I heard um, queers and I was like, yes. yeah. And our music is provided by the indomitable, the formidable. The amazing Avon Trips.
Pussy lips. Is that duck face or platypus face? Duck face. If you make your lips flatter, does it become platypus face? Show me the difference. Okay, duck lips. Platypus lips. Honestly, it just looks like kissing face, like, and then like you're a child. And speaking of, today we're going to talk about... 